Our message this morning is from the gospel, and it is called Built to Last. See, my father was a Chevy man. See, during his tenure at Chevrolet, one of the perks was of having a, a being management there was having a new car every three months or every 3,000 miles. See, he would put an order in with all of the bells and whistles, pick it up, and drive it away. And to my brothers in my excitement, we were able to drive brand new cars whenever Dad would let us, at least until Chevy changed the rules. See, apparently there were a lot of teenagers having accidents. So in early 2000, my dad retired, and some of you may know retirement has its advantages. But for my dad, a new car every three months or every 3,000 miles was not one of them. So when it was time for us to purchase cars, we would call for our special family code because we were committed to the GM brand. I have to admit, while growing up, my brothers and I made egregious fun of friends whose families drove Fords. We would warn them that their cars would be found on the road dead. And see, this continues throughout the years. As we got a little bit older, we began to ask questions like, how is a golf ball different from a Ford? You can drive a golf ball 200 yards. See, we were horrible. My parents raised us under the banner of the heartbeat of America. Baseball, hot dogs, apple pie, and Chevrolet. See, as competitors, Ford and Chevy both recognized they had to convince consumers their products were indeed not only dependable, but reliable. So Ford's slogan, built to last, and Chevy's, like a rock, both clearly alluded to the notion that durability matters. See, at some point shortly after Dad's retirement, he gave my mother his Chevy, and he drove home with, guess what, a Ford. (laughs) See, then we began to give Dad a hard time. It has happened as, you know, as we're talking and giving him a hard time, he promptly advised us that car manufacturers shared platforms and in some cases, engines and transmissions. See, his insider experience told him marketing persuades us to buy into or have faith in one product over another. See, it's easy to convince a buyer But as followers of Christ, we should not be consumer swayed. We bear witness to Christ because our faith and identity are grounded in recognizing and articulating who Jesus is in and to our lives. See, in the Gospel of Matthew, we find ourselves traveling to the Penaeus district, where Matthew is keenly focused on the dialogue between Jesus and his disciples. Jesus has been in the throes of his ministry, and the disciples are bearing witness to his miraculous healings. The Penaeus district was renamed for Philip the Tetrarch and Augustus Caesar. Caesarea Philippi was a place where the Gentiles worshipped the Greek god Pan. He was the god of the wild and hunting. 
Pan was depicted as a half-human with legs and the horns of a goat. So here we are with Jesus and his disciples in the midst of this Gentile nation. So for the first time, Jesus elicits from the disciples an answer to a simple yet unusual question. Who do people say that I am? See, it's unusual because up to this point, Matthew records the questions heard by Jesus and his disciples. What kind of man is this, that the winds and the sea obey him? Are you the one who has come to... Are you the one who has come to save us? Or shall we look for another? Can this be the son of David? See, as you read the gospel account, you will see their questions go unanswered. Most likely the very question that has been on the minds of the disciples from the beginning of their ministry with Jesus. After all, it has never been addressed until today. Jesus wanted to know, but not purely for information, what were people saying about him? How did they classify him after hearing him teach and as witnesses to his healings? See, he asked this question to elicit from the disciples a confession of his messianic identity. Jesus was not looking for affirmation. He's looking for authentication from those who truly bear witness to who he is. Sometimes, when we find ourselves in a tough situation, instead of authenticating who God is calling us to be, we ask similar questions to our family members to affirm our identity. What are people saying about me? I asked those same questions when I came into Dauphin Way. It's natural, but this is not the case with Jesus. Jesus is taking the initiative and seeking a response from those closest to him and is anticipating an answer. The disciples respond in a way that proclaims The people hold a variety of opinions about you, Jesus. You're an important figure. You may be a prophet, like Elijah and Jeremiah and possibly John the Baptist. You're connected to the prophecy, but you are not the Messiah. See, the initial exchange between Jesus and the disciples at times mirrors our own conversation with those who may not know Jesus. They've heard about Jesus as a prophet. They may know Jesus by word of mouth, but have yet to personally experience him. See, God is calling us to go beyond the knowledge of Jesus and live into who Jesus is calling us to be and to proclaim Jesus as the Son of God. As he's taking this initiative and asking these questions, Jesus digs a little bit deeper and he asks, Who do you say that I am? See, it is in this moment 
that Matthew focuses on the intimate conversation between Peter and Jesus. Jesus is not looking for an explicit answer. He's looking for the disciples to proclaim him, but they do not. Peter speaks up and boldly identifies Jesus as the Son of Man, the Messiah, and the Son of God. So when it comes to identifying in Christ, we either respond like the disciples or respond like Peter. When we respond like the disciples, we have a tendency to tell other people's faith stories, discuss the things that we've heard in Bible study, conversations that we've witnessed, without making a personal connection to our own lives. Sometimes we live vicariously through the witness of others rather than the witness of Christ in our own lives. See, it's more important to be transformational than to be polite. Those who respond like the disciples may have a tendency to not share how they know Jesus for themselves. Jesus has called out his disciples in a desire to know how they identify with him. And Peter is explicit where the others are silent. Over time, it seems as if Peter has become the spokesperson for the disciples. But we don't know why they're silent. There's nowhere in the gospel that says that they have been dismissed by Jesus. So as we read this passage, we know that they are there. Peter is not isolated from the twelve. He is among them. And because of their small group, and their travel throughout the regions, it is undoubtedly true that they discussed again and again the divinity of Jesus. Who do you say that Jesus is? As people who do not have a relationship with Christ come up to you and ask you, who is Christ to you? What does Christ mean to you? How has Christ helped you in your life? Do we respond with our own personal stories or the stories of someone else? See, during this confessional time, nothing was short of this divine intervention between Jesus and and Peter. Peter knew Jesus Christ for himself. He did not listen to the others. He was not silent in his revelation. He was bold to say in the midst of this pagan territory where the gods of the world were for sale, half men and half goat statues were widely available, where buildings or houses of worship and the Greek gods are the center of attention, Peter responds in the midst of this chaos, you are the son of the living God. Peter's statement is a turning point for the gospel and remains a turning point for us all. He has made the most important declaration that any of us can make in our life. You, Christ, are the Son 
of the living God, not these idols that are here in this district, but a God who is living and is working throughout history. See, I imagine at this moment the dialogue between Jesus and Peter becomes even more focused, where Jesus responds to Peter's divine confession by acknowledging Peter's full name and then letting him know that he is blessed, not because of human effort and knowledge or reasoning for that matter, but through the revelation of God a divinely certified truth. See, this scene reminds me of what it would look like when we celebrate the accomplishment of a child or a loved one. This divine revelation has been at work to bringing Peter and his disciples to this conclusion about Jesus, and that divine authority continues to be at work within us today. See, we bear witness to the work of the Holy Spirit throughout our lives, our communities, and the world. And as Peter makes this declaration, it is important to understand this is a significant place in this passage. Who is Jesus to you? As Peter has answered, Christ turns and says, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. In the Greek and Aramaic translations, Petros means rock, but it also means Peter. See, this is the place where we are being called to build a new community or church for God. And God has called Peter to be that leader. Rock carries the imagery that implies durability, stability, and endurance. And later in the narrative, it will become clear that this is about Peter's character, and it's not about Peter's character, but about his leadership. Jesus has paved the way for a new house of worship in his name. He is not talking about building a new temple. He is not talking about building a new synagogue. He is talking about preparing a new community in which we all belong to today. This is a new stage of advancement that will overcome all traditional barriers. Our church was built to last. Our church was built to withstand all ungodly powers and injustice. Our church was built so that we may proclaim to those who do not believe in Jesus Christ that Christ is the Son of God. Peter has a unique role in salvation history, and his personal statement to Jesus marks a change in the times. 
It is through faith that he brings new people into being. This is an establishment of a new community. This community was not just new 2,000 years ago. This community remains new today. And people are continuing to seek out that place where God is calling us to be all that we have been created to be by the Savior. With our presence, with our ministry in Christ, with our gifts and our talents, with our joys, and at times just with a smile. We are a new community. We are not an old, traditional, dead community. We serve a living God. When you serve a living God, how can you worship in a dead place? God is calling us to understand that our church has been built to last. See, being a follower of Christ is not a job like my dad had with Chevy, a job where we eventually retire. It's a ministry, and it's a challenging ministry, and an exciting promise of God's continued presence within the entire church. As we seek to witness and minister to the world in a way that will encourage and not despair, in a way that is marked by humanity, forgiveness, in service, in a way that is to all people and for all people. This church, you, you, me, we were built to last, regardless of what's happening In our world, God is calling us to continue to step out on faith and love. This church, our church, solid like a rock and is built to last. We do not live in an old dead community. We serve a risen living loving and gracious God. Let us all know that God is calling us to continue to be 
his children, in his world, to all of his people. We are built, we are built to last. Let us pray. We thank you, God, for this time, for a moment that will never come again. Continue to use us for your glory and impart in all of us your love, your grace, and the boldness to proclaim that you are the son of a living God. We bless your holy name. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen.